0: Our scripture passage today comes from the book of Psalms, Psalm 11. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. To the choir master of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked, the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. The grass withers, and the flower fades. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are continuing in our sermon series through the book of Psalms this summer. We won't make it all the way through, as we just have a few more weeks until the fall commences. Uh, But we have come now to Psalm 11. And there is kind of a theme verse oftentimes you'll find in a psalm. And the theme verse in this psalm, the essence of what David is getting at here with this song, is found in verse 3. It is a question. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? There are many things that we can think of when we hear the word the foundations and uh, how they're being destroyed. There are many things in which we build our lives. Perhaps we look around in the society around us and we begin to think the foundations are not only turning negatively or beginning to crumble, but it seems that they are beginning to be more and more destroyed. Perhaps we have... Nostalgic views of what our country used to be or the way things have been in times past. And we look around ourselves now and we see atrocities in our cities. We see so many countless evils. Some of the foundational principles about what makes a society a society. In fact, if we look back at the creational order back in Genesis chapter 1, there are really four things that make a society flourish. Four things that God has put together. First, one that perhaps we take for granted is that God calls Adam to work. When he creates him, he gives him a task. And so all societies need work. Beyond that, there's this sanctity of human life. The first real sin we see after the fall is Cain and Abel. The taking of innocent life. The beginning of destruction of their society. When we say sanctified, we don't just mean what you might see on a billboard or on a yard sign. But what we mean is the Lord's holiness on life. That he created Adam and Eve in his image. That he has given them dignity. That he has set them apart. That he is in communion with them. That life is precious and has worth Beyond that, we see another outflow of this idea of work is the sanctity of marriage, that Adam and Eve were joined together by God and that nobody was to separate what God had joined together. We have work, we have the sanctity of life, the value of human life. We have the sanctity of marriage, the building block of foundation. we think about how societies grow, how they are formed, the things that help us to flourish as people created in God's image, well, we can look around our society and we can see how all of those things are always at odds with God's design ever since Adam and Eve fell into sin. We currently have far more jobs than people willing to work them. The idea of work is burdensome to us. It's part of the curse that Adam was going to have to work the ground, but it was going to be hard. We see the devaluation of human life in so many different ways. Of course, the most obvious to us in our day is the great sin of abortion. The belittling of other people. Places like China who are gathering up Uyghurs into camps exploitation of child labor. The value of a human life has become lessened over time, not only in our own culture, but throughout history, throughout the world. Of course, we can look at the ways in which marriage has come under assault in many ways, many times, and not even so much of the different perversions that have come along, but really at the heart of it, Is it really that important? Isn't it more optional? Can we just forego marriage altogether? These are some of the signs that we look around at the foundation of God's established society, and we begin to think things aren't the way they ought to be. And when we look around our own culture and we think about the foundations that our country was built on, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, we might think, and we've drifted a long ways from where we began. And we can have an immediate response as we are given these messages. We get these reports. Depending on which news channel you turn on, the report will be extremely negative on this side or it will be extremely negative on this side. Nobody has a good report. What does the report tell us to do? It tells us to hate other people. It tells us to run away and to hide. It tells us to protect ourselves and our children. It vilifies our enemies. Causes us to panic. It's the same false report that David has received as he is seeing the foundation of his kingdom being destroyed. David here is no doubt in a place of plight. Oftentimes he is faced with sedition and enemies coming at him to take his life. And this is what David says to them. Verse 1 and 2. In the Lord I take refuge... How can you say to me? So they come and they say to him, This is the report. He turns on the news. You know what, David? Things are getting real bad. You should flee like a bird to your mountain. Find a safe place to go and hide out. Look, the wicked have their bow bent, they have put the arrow on the string. It is pointing at you and it's in the dark. You can't even see it's going to come. Wicked is prevailing. There's no hope for you to stay here. You need to go protect yourself. You are far too important to be here on the front lines. Run away. David's question here, how can you say to my soul, is one of rebuke. It's one in which David says in his opening verse, in the Lord I take refuge in Yahweh, in the covenant God, the one who has anointed me as his king, the one who has shown his love to me. In him I take refuge. So how can you say to me, run away? How can you say to me, hide? How can you say to me that the bow is pointed at me and that my life is in danger? Look, if all of the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? We are bombarded with the same message in a different time, in a different place, with different circumstances and different things being destroyed before us. But the claim is the same. Run away. Hide. Before it's too late. David has a different response than his advisor's. Than his newscast. He has a different response for us to take to heart. God's word instructs us not to look at the things around us, not to be concerned about our well-being in a way that causes us to run and to hide and to flee and to be consumed by what's happening around us. Indeed, it's true that these enemies are coming after David. It might be true that they are hiding in the dark with their arrows pointed at him and those who are trying to defend him. And it might be true for us that we see society around us beginning to look not so great. The difference is not in the report and its truthfulness. It's in the response. And really, David points us to three things that the righteous should do. Three things, three pillars that the righteous must be reminded of when the foundations are destroyed. That despite any circumstances, despite any instability, any time, in any place, these are the things that we must hold dear. We see David's response then in verse 4 The Lord is in his holy temple. Now, we can kind of see this in the English, but in Hebrew language, when they put a word at the beginning of the sentence, gives this great emphasis. And we see the word the Lord is the first word of this sentence. When you put the subject at the beginning of the sentence, it highlights the Lord. Remember, all caps, Lord is Yahweh. It's like he's yelling. Yahweh is in his holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. David is looking at his circumstance. He's hearing the bad reports. He is being told to fear and to run and to hide. He's being told about the threats on his life. And the first thing he does is he remembers who the Lord is. It is the Lord who is on his throne in his holy temple. And it's not that he's just in the holy temple in Jerusalem where David is. He is in the temple that it was made after. Not merely an earthly temple, not merely a ruler in this age, but high and lifted up in the place far above all authority. David is reminded who's really in charge. One of the tactics people use in our news cycle is to tell you other people are in charge and they're going to take control and when they do it will be like this and there may be some temporal truth to those reports but like David how can you say how can you say these things it is in the Lord that I take refuge And who is the Lord? Well, he is Yahweh in his holy temple, seated on a throne in heaven. The first mistake that we make as God's people is forgetting who God is. Forgetting that he is seated on a throne, that he is all-powerful, that he is all-knowing. Indeed, as David is being pursued, it is he that is allowing it to take place. It is not outside of his control. But this is the first place that David brings us, the first pillar that we must stand on as we stand on foundations that are being destroyed. Because there's a foundation below it. Indeed, ironically, it's actually above it the Lord's throne in heaven, in his holy temple. Now, who is this Lord who is sitting on a throne? In heaven, verse 4 goes on to say, his eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord's not merely sitting on a throne by himself, waiting around to see what's going to happen next. He's not watching his favorite movie, occupying himself with other things. The second pillar that David is giving for us to stand on is that the Lord knows. We maybe think our society is coming apart. It's far better than most people's plight around the world throughout the ages. As we prayed earlier for the persecuted church. Is it not the first question that you might have as you belong to the Lord? Does he see? Does he know? Does he care? His eyes see. The Lord's eye is about us. His eyelid tests the children of man. Now, the children of man its really the phrase the sons of Adam, all mankind. The Lord sees what is happening. There's a time for reckoning that we see is going to come about. Who are the righteous? Who are the wicked? It's not going to be found out on who wins the earthly battle, but on whom the Lord sees and judges righteously. So we, re- we are reminded who the Lord is, where he is seated, how he is powerful, that he sees, that he knows, that he's watching he's testing, that he's letting it play out according to his purposes more on in this testing it says he tests the righteous David here has been given this counsel run away David hide, you can't do anything your life is in danger the Lord is testing David Will David trust in the Lord's power? Will David trust in his sovereign rule? Why are the bad things in my life happening? Well, perhaps God is using them to sanctify us, to cause us to trust in him more, to be reminded that he is the place we must flee for refuge. But there's a distinction made. He he tests the righteous, just like We see throughout Scripture tests Abraham as his promised son is finally born and he loves him so much. And it seems like the promises of God have finally been fulfilled in his life. And the Lord shows up and says, hey, Abraham. Yes, Lord. You know, that son, your only son, your beloved son, the one whom you love. Of course, Lord. Know the story? The Lord calls Abraham to a test, to bring him up on Mount Moriah, to slay him, to offer him up as a sacrifice. Of course, we know that the Lord intervenes and he does not actually have Abraham do this deed. But it was a reminder, a test, a time in which Abraham had to decide. Who do I truly trust in? Where is my refuge? Is it in the good things I have received? Is it in my own strength? Is it in my own prosperity? Or is it in the Lord who has given me those things? The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. It's a pretty strong statement to say that the Lord hates somebody. Oftentimes we think of God in one of two ways. Some people think of this vengeful, angry God. Other people like to think of God as only loving, caring, always overlooking And indeed, both of those images of God's character are true. God hates wickedness. He hates people that love violence. He hates sin. As we confessed earlier, he is abounding in steadfast love to those who fear him. It is not that he has decided to hate, not hate the sin in your life. But ultimately, that is what the gospel is all about. That God hated sin. That he hated the wicked things you did. And in order to show his steadfast love to you, Jesus bore the hatred. Jesus bore what we see here in verse 6. Let the, him rain coals on the wicked fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup it's easy for us sometimes to read a psalm and to think about our society around us and think about the foundations and we think okay we're righteous the society is wicked god's going to judge them but we ought not to forget who we are in the story David is the anointed king of Israel. He is a foreshadow of the anointed king, Jesus Christ, who is to come. For honest, as we read ourselves into this, we ought to be reading ourselves into those who have been wicked, who have loved violence, who have only received God's favor because he's done something about it. This is the cup that Jesus drank. As he was praying in that garden before his passion, he said, Lord, if it is possible, may this cup pass. But if it is your will, Lord, may it be done. He looked into the cup of this wrath. He looked into the hatred of sin. Indeed, this language of Fire of coals, raining of coals and fire and sulfur. This is the imagery of Sodom and Gomorrah. The total obliteration of people because of their wickedness, because of their violence. Couldn't be any more clear. And yet it is here that we see what Christ has truly done. That like Sodom and Gomorrah, we deserve to be crushed. We deserve to burn up with the rest of them. And yet Christ was crushed for us. The third thing we're supposed to remember here is that he hates wickedness. Think about these wicked people who have their bows drawn back, their arrows pointing at David. What does he say? Look, the Lord is in his temple. And he is watching and he knows. And guess what? He hates wickedness. He hates the wicked. He hates those who love violence. These people who maybe are threatening me, they don't have this a problem with me. They have a problem with Yahweh. He brings true Judgment. Verse 7, for the Lord is righteous and he loves righteous deeds. David is the righteous man in his day. He knows the Lord has shown him grace and favor and he loves the righteous one. The one who in many ways is the representation of God's ministering to his people at this time. He knows he's been set apart. That God has done a work to count him differently than those who seek his end. These are the three pillars that David turns to when he gets this report. Who the Lord is, where he is seated, how holy and powerful and almighty he is. And yet his involvement, his watching eye and his ability to do something about it, to reward the righteous, to save his people and to punish the wicked. I would imagine in the time which Jesus lived, we have a couple of accounts of it, when uh, perhaps there were many people who came to him and said, You know, Jesus, it's not going very well. You should probably get out of town. I heard the Sadducees and the Pharisees aren't very happy, and they're going to turn you over to the Romans. Apostle Peter said, after Jesus said he would die, he said, Lord, I'll never let it happen. What did Jesus say to him after that? Get behind me, Satan. Jesus received these same false reports, that it would be better for him to leave, better for him to hide, better for him to just avoid the conflict. But in him and in David here, we see the great example of him standing on the true foundation. He knew that even as he would be handed over, even as his beloved disciple Judas would betray him, even as he would be mocked and spat upon, even as Peter would deny him three times, even in the moment when he could be released, instead a robber was given, even when he was humiliated and beaten and flogged, when he shamefully drug a cross down a road to be executed. Even when he was mocked on the cross, if you're the Son of God, why don't you save yourself? He says he saved others. Why don't you flee to like a bird to a mountain? Jesus personifies where we need to stand. Jesus knew that God was working all this according to his purpose and that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Because he knew the judgment wasn't there. It wasn't that he was going to be defeated, but that God was going to work resurrection power, that even death itself could not separate him the great paradox that Jesus is the faithful one and the one who receives the punishment of the wicked. Reminds me of a psalm, Psalm 121. It's one you're probably somewhat familiar with, as it's been turned into several modern songs. Psalm 121. Such a great reminder of where we go when we see the foundations destroyed around us. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. His eye is watching, remember. The question, what will the righteous do? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Where do you look? Where do you turn? So often we turn to our own camps, our own political parties, our own strength, our own resources. Our own plans to flee, to preserve ourselves for one more day. David reminds us that that does not need to be our plight, that we belong to a Lord who is far greater than any threat we might face. And even if we languish here and we don't see his deliverance in this temporal state, indeed, he will make all things new. Is that not what Jesus said? Behold, I am making all things new. But here in the last Phrase of our psalm is the greatest hope we could ever hope to have. The upright shall behold his face. Throughout scripture, we have all of these scenes in which the Lord's presence shows up and nobody can look at him. Moses has to hide in a rock. When he goes into the tent of meeting, he gets so much glory. He even has to cover his face because people can't look at him. Because he is reflecting God's glory. When Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up, immediately he goes from seeing the Lord to seeing his feet because he can't stare at his face. What we need more than anything else. What these three pillars have to show us is that in our time of need, when everything else seems to fall away, we need to see the Lord's face. And the promise is that we will, that as we look into the darkness, that as we look into the pain of our lives, we know there's a face who's watching, who's caring, who's more powerful than those who seek our lives, those who seek to take what God has given to us. And that when we see his face, there will be two different types of reactions. Those who see his face, who practice wickedness, who love violence, it will be the worst sight they could ever imagine. You read the imagery of Jesus in the book of Revelation as he comes again with flames in his eyes and a sword coming out of his mouth. It will strike terror and dread. But to those whom God has redeemed, those who are united to Christ, whose punishment has been paid, it'll be like seeing your dad coming back from war, coming to help you in your distress, to kiss. Your wound, to wipe away your tear, to embrace you. It's tempting for us to believe the reports and to act in anxiety, to flee. When we find ourselves in challenge, when we see things go awry, maybe be reminded of the face of our God. May we be reminded of who he is, his care for us, and his promise to make all things new. It is what will sustain us and will not let us down. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've made these promises to us. That though we deserve judgment, Christ has borne it for us. And though we tremble in fear of the surroundings in our lives, you are far greater. May we seek your face. And Lord, when we come to you, may we not shriek in fear, but come in joy. May it give us confidence to stand, confidence to live our lives knowing you rule and reign. We need your spirit to empower us, to give us all that we need to live this type of life. Would you encourage our hearts today? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.